Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're talking to Brian Fox, the co-founder and CTO of Sonatype, a company that is passionate about open source software, developing it smarter, faster and more secure. In particular, we're going to be talking about the security and attack vectors around open source software and raise the awareness of how you can stand up to this dark world of hacking and security breaches. So let's not delay. Let's let Brian into the space to share his story and knowledge. So welcome, Brian. Welcome to CTO Confessions podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Sure. My name is Brian Fox. I'm uh, the co-founder and CTO here at Sonatype. Um, we're the company that uh, we started out in Apache Maven. We run the Maven Central Repository, which is the the, the repository where the world gets their open source Java from. Um, wow. And um and uh, you know, my background is in software development, obviously through Apache Maven and uh, and public health uh, before that, um, and and uh, it's it's been a great journey. Brilliant, excellent. So coming back to yourself and your journey to t- your tech leadership journey, you know, to the to the place you've got to now. What's that journey been like from techie to leading? Yeah, it's it's been a long, uh, not straight line journey. Um, you know, I I, I think. You know, early on in my career, I started at small companies where there was no hard line between, you know, leader and and uh, and developer that we kind of had to figure stuff out on on our own. Um, you know, I, I moved up doing a lot of project management and then product management. Um, and you know, many, many years ago, I figured out that uh, when I wasn't writing the code myself, um, even when I was writing the code myself, I was more interested in finding ways to solve problems for the end users and less interested in trying the shiny new object tech toy of the week. Um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I found myself when I found a tool and I got really good at it, uh, that was the quickest way to solve problems for end users. And so, um, you know, when, when we started Sonatype, um, you know, I was running both engineering and, you know, effectively product management. We didn't have a discrete uh, kind of function. Um, yeah. And and then, um, you know, when we, we got a little bit bigger, we split those up. We brought in some product managers, but um, we found that uh, it was difficult for people that didn't have the deep domain experience uh, because our tooling is uh, primarily focused for developers or for development shops. And mm-hmm. so if you weren't already a developer, um, it can be very hard to figure out how to manage that product. And so there was a lot of tension um, during that time. And then later on, when given the opportunity, as we scaled again, you know, I said, you know, I think I want to focus on the product side yeah. of the house um, and more so than than the actual engineering delivery, um, because that in our space was um, the more um, relevant skill. 
Um, you know, it's, it's hard to find product managers who really understand the engineering side, but it's easier to find engineering leaders who understand the engineering side. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so this transition to kind of starting up, Sonatype, you're one of the co-founders, Sonatype. Um, what was the what was the thing that kind of drew you to set that up? Was there a, was there a purpose that you had? Was there a mission? Yeah, in the in the very early days, it was a lot about uh, building products and doing training and consulting around Maven itself. Yeah. Um, and so there were a couple of us uh, in the Maven project that kind of went off and did that. Um, you know, this was around 2007, and Maven was kind of still on the massive up uptick of its popularity. It was the kind of the new hot thing that everybody uh, wanted to use but didn't know how to use. And so there was a lot of opportunity for us to um, kind of bootstrap doing training and consulting around that. Mm. Um, And, you know, when we ultimately got uh, venture funded, um, you know, we we focused more on building products. That was always the plan. Um, But but looking back, those consulting deals and training that I, I personally, you know, flew around the world, delivered, uh, really helped shape the future of the company to where we are because I, I got to see firsthand um, how companies were struggling to govern, um, you know, what what their developers were using in terms of the open source components uh, mm. from a very firsthand perspective. You know, when, when, when a company is looking at modernizing their build infrastructure, all the things kind of come into play. And so I started getting questions from from the people, not so much about how do I use this feature in Maven, but more like my legal team requires us to approve every single dependency and Maven is fetching them automatically and the versions are changing, you know, all the time. Mm. How do I deal with that? It's like, well, that's not a Maven question. <laughs> that's a yes. business process question. Right. Um, and, and same thing as it unfolded later around uh, open source uh, supply chain security, same kind of thing. So, you know, I think that experience early on, um, while we were trying to do a different thing, we couldn't avoid those conversations was was really formative. Yeah, great. And um, so coming back, back to now, um, um, Sonatype, you've got a very clear mission. I was kind of reading it on your website. So do you want to tell the audience around what your mission is now? Yeah, our, our mission is to help organizations uh, do a better job of leveraging open source components um, because that's how you develop innovative software quickly. You, you know, nobody gets ahead these days by rewriting the same persistence libraries and network libraries like I had to do early in my career. Um, but we want to help organizations be able to do that responsibly and and manage those dependencies in ways that are compatible or empowering even to development as opposed to the historical uh, approaches which have been very combative and and um you know uh slowing down development um and not achieving the goal so we're trying to help companies basically get the best of open source without all of the downside is is just yeah, yeah. Yeah, because um, uh, being a software engineer in the past, I was, I was an embedded software engineer. I mean, so open source um, uh, libraries were used, and there's kind of huge wealth, armies of people working on this stuff, a lot of innovation. Um, uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I kind of understand the advantage. What, what's your kind of perspective on the advantages of using open source? Well, the advantage of using open source is that 
pretty much if there's a problem to be solved, somebody's already solved it. Um, and, and maybe f way down the road ahead of you in, in solving it in, in pretty powerful ways, especially with some of the larger um, communities. And so uh, you can basically use those as building blocks and focus on the business logic that your particular application Yes. Has. Uh, you know, but on the flip side, you know, open source usually doesn't come with a support contract. It doesn't come with a lot of guarantees. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's a, a, a you get what you pay for in some cases. Um, and, and the larger problem in many organizations is that um, they may have well-defined procurement procedures for when they want to engage a software vendor to pull something in, let's say, you know, engaging with Microsoft or GitHub or something like that. That's a well-defined process. But when when developers are choosing open source components to go in their applications, there's no procurement officer reviewing the quality of that, of the vendor, of the people behind yeah. it, um, any of the support contracts. So it kind of, in many organizations, at least for the last decade and a half or so, has really flown under the radar. <clears throat> I, I would say it's only within the last, you know, five, six years that most organizations have really started to accept that this is something that we need to do uh, just to be good at software development. It's not a, it's not a, um, a hidden kind of thing anymore. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. There's a, um, a, a process, a procurement process for open source. There's, a, there's nuances in there. Um, this kind of brings me on to the kind of core offering, I, what I believe is your core offering and your expertise as a tech leader and, and Sonatype um, is around, there's obviously plus sides of using open source. What's the downsides? Well, the downside is when you're not managing it properly, which many organizations are um, are unfortunately in that camp. Uh, you know, like I said, there, there, there aren't those checks and balances uh, in, in a lot of organizations. And worse, some organizations have historically over-rotated on the, the checks and balances. You know, it, in, in the time frame around 2010-ish, let's say, you know, many organizations, when you said open source, their mental model was things like uh, Linux, Firefox, OpenOffice. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, which were all um, open source analogs to something they were used to paying for, even databases, you know, open source MySQL versus Oracle. That's yeah. what people tended to think about. And so they they tended to try and drive all of that through a process that looked very much like a committee based decision to stop using Office and go get OpenOffice or move from Microsoft Server to Linux. That's a decision that you should make carefully mm -hmm. and, and one that you make. Uh, maybe once, and you've you've revisited occasionally. It's not a process that works well when a developer is trying to pick ten libraries to get an application done tomorrow, and yeah. those ten libraries are going to change on average four times a year. You know, so you've got organizations that are now using, you know, on average three hundred thousand independent open source components in an organization. How do you make that decision by a committee? How do you have any chance of keeping up with it? The answer is you can't. And if you try to manage it that way, you know, by committee, by approval process, you're either kidding yourselves that the developers <laughs> are just working around the process and doing it anyway, yeah. um, or or if you actually have locked it down in such a way that you enforce it, you've pretty much broken the backs of them. The good developers are going to leave and you're actually hurting your innovation. And in some cases, making the problem worse because what what I see sometimes in, in procedures that are managed that way, developers will just say, well, I'm using this old version because that's the one that's approved. 
right? And that old version might be many years, many layers of vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and, and worse, now you have a massive pile of tech debt to move from that really old version to the new version. So you've, you've accidentally um, incented the wrong behavior because yeah. of the procedures, right? So it's not solving the problem they think it is. And, and um, you know, we've been kind of on that mission now for more than a decade, trying to uh, change the way people think about that problem, to, to think about their software um, as a supply chain and think about, you know, it, it is a continuous move, a thing that is continuously in motion. You can't just have a six week process to decide to update a version. Um, that's no good in a world where, uh, Equifax was being exploited two days after the disclosure of the vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so those are the challenges that we see uh, companies dealing with right now. Yeah. And what's the kind of knee-jerk reaction? I can imagine there's a knee-jerk reaction to this. Just don't use open source. I mean, is that, is that something <laughs> we, we've actually do? heard that from a bank? It's been a while, but you know, so somebody said that, and you know, the technology people in the in the bank reportedly said, "Well, we might as well just close up shop then, because uh, in modern development, you can't you can't develop really uh, using JavaScript without using some open source. Like you'd be insane to try that. Same thing with Java. Really, any of the modern languages, even when you think about containers, all those things are being fetched from online. So if you really want to go in a hole and write every single line of code from scratch, uh, you have no chance of competing with the people who aren't doing that. Right. And and certainly there are probably use cases for where that makes sense. Like, you know, high side networks, embedded networks where, where, um, you know, the, the, the cost is worth the expense is worth it. But, um, in a, in a competitive commercial industry when, and which one isn't these days, the difference is, is all about the software and the, and ultimately who can out innovate whom. And so, um, to do that, uh, without using any open source is just, yeah, I mean, it's just not possible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a no go. Um, I imagine, uh, stacks, layers and layers of different applications and things that are kind of uh, already there, you know, to not use them, to write them from scratch would be just kind of ridiculous, I, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine a, a new auto manufacturer coming along today saying, you know what, we're not going to buy parts from anybody but ourselves. We're going to build every single thing from the pistons to the <laughs> chips, to the wires, to the glass. Yeah. yeah. That's what you're talking about if yeah, you're if right. you're imagining that you're not going to leverage any of these components in your software. It's <laughs> laughable from a physical perspective, but yeah. um but but that's what the reality is. Reality is. I can just imagine somebody saying, "Well, good luck with that." Well, you know, as they kind of walk away. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um so Again, coming back round to, I mean, obviously there's some positives. It's a, it's a thing that you've got to use. Um, it's open source is there. It's a wealth of innovation. Uh, lots of things that you, you kind of pick off the shelf. There, there's obviously the, the downsides, and we've kind of spoke around this offline, which is the kind of security element. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things about, you know, picking open source stuff is it's not a free ride, you know, in sense that you can just kind of use it. Um so the kind of attack vectors that people can use to kind of get in there. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I've I've been talking about this obviously for a long time, and it, and it's evolved. But you know, the way I look at it right now, um, with a with the longer lens of perspective of what's been going on with open source, I think there's been sort of three distinct um, eras, if you will, of what's happened. The first era um, was more about um, people rapidly. Uh, figuring out how to exploit bugs 
in the software, right? This is what we're all used to in terms of vulnerabilities in the software. Most of the time it was a bug and somebody figured out how to, how to leverage it to bad effect. That was the first phase. And this, this, you know, the attack that happened on Equifax clearly fell in that, in that camp where it was, it was just a bug in struts. It didn't get patched. And, you know, the attackers were looking and starting to pay attention to this because it was a force multiplier. These com these, these components were so popular. They existed in so many applications that they effectively became, you know, what engineers call a common mode failure, right? Wow. It's one thing you break that you can get at uh, hundreds of or thousands of users. And so that really attracted attention to it for that reason, that the most popular components were popular because everybody used them. That's mm -hmm. a consolidation of risk. The second phase started in around 2017, where we saw um, attacks specifically aimed at open source developers themselves, people like me, right? And and we saw, um, you know, uh, studies that showed that uh, at that time, what was it, 17, 14% uh, uh, of the NPM repository, 79,000 individual components were published by people who used simple passwords that were easily dictionary attacked, or they made a mistake and checked the password into GitHub so the whole world could see it, right? And so this wasn't, that surprising to me at that time, but it was a perfect sort of uh, indicator to point to the rest of the world that, hey, you expect that the open source projects you're using um, have, you know, they're written by very seasoned developers, things, you know, the, the mental model in that case would be things like Linux, like Apache, like BSD that have very good software practices and everybody relies on as critical infrastructure. People tended to think that all open source came that way. And that was really not true over, you know, the, the previous decade, a lot of these tools made it really easy for hobbyists to create and share open source. That's mm -hmm. how I got involved in Maven, honestly. And, and, um, you know, you end up with this unintentional dumbing down effect uh, of what's going on there to the point where you now have individual uh, people, not projects per se. You know, in the early days, projects had to be supported by foundations because nobody could afford to run a server on their own. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so you saw, you saw, you know, SourceForge and Apache and Eclipse and, and those types of places where people came together to share the resources. Nowadays, anybody can get uh, an account on GitHub. You don't need to run a server even. And even if you did, getting getting compute time off of Amazon is pennies an hour, right? Yeah. And so, so you know, the the democratization of that process has also inadvertently dumbed down the the maturity of the people publishing those things, or at least the average maturity. Most consumers aren't aware of that. And so in 2017, we saw a lot of attacks that were focused on exploiting that. And what they were doing is stealing the credentials of those publishers so that they could then attempt to publish malicious versions of software as that person, right? And we saw many, many attacks where it, the novel part was that the attack was not trying to either exploit the bug or inject a bug to cause it to be consumed downstream by the end user of the software. Rather, it was focused on that open source publisher itself. Right. Um, presumably as a as a leverage point to then insert something to the end user. The third phase that we saw start to happen kind of started happening in 2018 and has really exploded. Last year, uh, we saw a 430 percent explosion in the number of of intentionally malicious attacks. 
And this year it's not even, I don't even know if we'll be able to count. Like, like seriously, we see dozens to hundreds of them on any given week anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where the, the new thing is the focus is on um, the, the developers and the development infrastructure at companies. So like solar winds, right? The attack focused on solar winds um, uh, on their software, but we've seen so many other cases. Just about a month ago, there was a a release. Uh, Verkada is a a surveillance camera company. They have surveillance feeds from hospitals and police interrogation rooms and schools and even a Tesla plant. Um, Attackers were able to uh, get in through uh, um, an unpatched Jenkins CI server part of the development infrastructure from there that was their foothold that they could then get around to the rest of the organization and if you think about um, especially in a cloud native environment where companies are developing and deploying the cloud native and you're doing it in a, a continuous delivery world the development machines the development infrastructure has the api keys the passwords to the things going into production so if an attacker can get even onto an individual developer machine, they may have everything they need to then, you know, uh, exploit the rest of the infrastructure. And so we've seen specific targeted attacks. Um, we just blogged about one literally yesterday. Um, a- another one where as soon as a developer uh, downloads this component, um, NPM runs an installer, which tries to put in a backdoor and, um, and it actually attacks a development machine. Right. And this is, this sounds scary. Um, and it is, but some of us have become a little bit desensitized to it because like I said, it's happening like every single week. Yeah. And, and, um, that feels like a novel new thing, right? So first phase was people just figure how to rapidly exploit latent bugs after they were disclosed and fixed, knowing the fact that people didn't have, uh, good, um, uh, bill of materials. They didn't know what components they were using and where they were using them. And so it took them a long time to update. The second phase was attacking the open source publishers themselves to find ways to insert things upstream. And the third phase is now effectively doing the same thing, but not targeting the open source publishers, but targeting company developers. The reason why that is really important and why I hammer on that nearly every time I have the opportunity to speak is that so much of the historical trained behavior around security and around application security specifically is focused on the end product, the thing that the company is producing and shipping to its users or putting into production, right? And so you see companies that develop processes that are like everything must be scanned before we put it into release and so if you've got a two-week release cycle you're doing application scans every two weeks historically we've we've all talked about the fact that that's not an awesome process because the cost of rework is really high right so if you wait two weeks to find that they made a bad choice Hmm. then it's really hard to stop the release go back and fix it so a continuous scan is better but the more profound impact of this is if you're only scanning the end user product as it goes out the door occasionally you're missing all of the attacks that have been happening potentially on your development infrastructure you wouldn't know that a developer searched for a component and found a typo squatted version of it and grabbed the wrong one and got a backdoor inserted on them two weeks ago. In fact, you might not ever see that because that thing might not even make it into the final product. And yet, like Verkata, you might have been attacked, yeah. right? And so I, I talk about that because I want people to realize that they really have to rethink how they're doing defense in this new world, that the game is is totally different. Yeah. So. 
I've kind of got an image of um, rubber stamping open source communities or open source source code uh, uh, in, in a way that, you know, this is good quality, they've got good practice, it's good etiquette. Is there something like that in the industry at the moment? Um, we've been trying to build uh, what we call hygiene to be able to do analysis of projects to uh, basically score them on multiple different dimensions. You know, how 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 robust is the committer history? You know, are, are do they have, uh, you know, sustained people? Um, are they, uh, you know, what's the history of vulnerability status? You know, are they staying up to date on their own dependencies? Uh, all these problems I just described that occur in companies also apply at a smaller level to these projects because these projects have dependencies themselves. And if they're not paying attention, they're not updating, the yeah. down, downstream users suffer. Um, uh, because, because we've been trying to provide a way to surface that information. You know, Historically, developers found open source components to use by asking friends, going on forums. Um, you know, and, and just like, oh, that worked for them. I guess I'll use that. So there is no uh, underwriters laboratory, if you will, for for projects. And, and we've actually been um, been providing some of that data to our customers for a while now to help guide those decisions up front to make better choices when possible. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, you know, uh, once you've made the choice of, of a particular code, a component or framework, you're not changing that out very often in the life of a project. The bigger problem is just tracking and making sure you're staying up to date yeah. uh, on the individual versions of that particular component. Right? Yeah. And um, so I've got this picture of, you know, the open source having its own kind of cadence of updates and what have you. And sometimes I guess some of these libraries can have uh, quite, quite uh, frequent updates. How often do you kind of suggest that you stay up to date with this stuff is it as soon as a new, new version comes out you can no. feed it in no. it's not that um it wants to be that but in this case that that behavior um is one that maven doesn't do maven never updated the versions for you unless you told it to right so we we preferred stability over yes ease of update and it turns out that was a good choice because uh more recent package systems like NPM or PyPy for Python or even Ruby gems, um, they will favor the latest unless you've told it not to. So they've inverted the behavior, which makes it super easy to stay up to date. If you're an attacker looking for a user, what's which one are you going to prefer? Mm. You're going to prefer the one that if I can figure out how to get a version in the repository, I instantly have the updates. I instantly have people downloading it. And so I think that is the probably the most significant reason why most of the malicious attacks we've been observing over the last three or four years have happened in those ecosystems. It, it's, it's just a simple economics from the attacker and where's the ease of user acquisition, if you will, from the malicious yeah. <laughs> attack. Uh, I don't have to have my thing out there for months. I might only have it up there for, for a day before somebody notices, doesn't matter, I had a million downloads. Yeah. Right. Um, and if you're mining cryptocurrency, that's a lot of CPU power brought to bear. If you're if you're potentially installing backdoors, that's a pretty big attack surface where one of those is going to land that you can exploit. Right. So yeah. if you think about the the, um, the the economics from the attacker perspective, um, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and you know, speaking of the economics, I, I've used these slides in my talk a lot, but um, in, in 2016, there was a study done that, that showed that at that time, the entire worldwide drug trade as an industry, if you will, 
was was worth a combined value of 435 billion dollars. Wow. It's a big number. In 2016, the same year, cybercrime as an industry was already costing society 450 billion dollars. So, 5 years ago, it was a 15 billion dollar larger industry than all of the drugs. And if you think about that for a moment, think about how often on the news, the war on drugs, mm. the opioid crisis, you know, uh Colombia and all the drug lords and everything that's happening in all of the different places around the world. That was a smaller industry than cybercrime 5 years ago. And the projection by the end of this year is that it would be 6 trillion dollars. Wow. So it's got you know the the hockey curve that any VC would look for it's you know up into the moon whereas um drug trade is fairly flat actually <laughs> you know it it's it turns out it's hard to move illegal goods and not get caught over a long period of time but when you're dealing with virtual goods cryptocurrency um you know stolen identity uh, all these kinds of things it's much harder to get caught doing that mm-hmm. um and so the the payoff is is the ROI is much higher. And so as a society, we spend so much time worried about drugs and we're completely ignoring this other attack vector. So, yeah. you know, if if you think about um that that industry growing to 6 trillion dollars on that massive trajectory and think of think of it reframe it as that's imagine if somebody was investing 6 trillion dollars to compete with you. That's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> right yes. right and and but that's exactly what's happening that is the investment level if you want to think of it that way that is motivating and incenting the non-nation state actors right yeah. the nation states have their own reasons that are primar- primarily not monetary and they're doing it as well this is what we have uh, focused against us and yeah. you know i think that we are uh, not well suited simply because we are just not focusing on the problem yeah, uh, people don't recognize it as such. Yes, I, I, I guess with these uh, big uh, events like uh, the solar winds, um, maybe the conversation is becoming more uh, pronounced and uh, and being discussed more within the government. That is a hundred percent true. Um, you know, I think there was a wake up call for a lot of financial firms that happened in. Uh, uh, Certainly Equifax, there were a couple events that happened that are less well-known that happened several years before within the banks. They all got the religion on this a long time ago. Um, the government definitely can't ignore the impact of solar winds. And so there's um, uh, apparently a, a pending executive order from the current administration to require software bill of materials from anybody who is um, selling software to uh, the US government. You know, I- ironically in 2013-2014 I think it was, there was a bill in Congress to do exactly that. It didn't pass. Mm. Um the the awareness at that time was not there. Um uh clearly it is now at least in the administration. So, you know, they're moving to to do that as well as try to shore up some of the the problems um on the build side, I've heard that in some cases they will require that the build infrastructure be completely offline. You know, and like we, what we talked about before, mm. that might be an over rotation, an over response to some of that. That might cost more, cause more problems than it than it solves. Yeah. This is what happens when industries don't act when they when they get regulations imposed on them. Yeah. Those are blunt force objects that that, that we then have to, have uh, to work around. It's, it's right. almost like um, a security debt that's built up, you know, they're on different fronts, on lots of different layers. It's just been completely, and it's become a, a huge problem. Yeah. 
the the image I've got in my head is you know I'm, I'm thinking of Darwinian kind of e- evolution. You know this kind of uh, survival of the fittest, and you've got an, almost like an arms race going on with the uh, these kind of attackers, and then you've got this other you know other side trying to just evolve and create innovation and what have you. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, but it, but it, I mean, is that is that realization that this war is actually a lot more sophisticated? I mean, I can't, I can't being a techie myself, I know it's out there. Um, do do other tech leaders, um, businesses uh, see this as their kind of number one thing to focus on? Not enough. Not enough, honestly. Um, you know, I, I, I like to bring this back to the to the physical world because I think it's it's so much easier uh, for people to understand. Um, you know, if if we look at, I think there are three instances that I like to talk about that that um, that have happened in physical supply chain. So the first one, back in 2013, at least here in the United States, um, there was a car. It was a Chevy Cobalt. You know, small small compact car. Um, and there were some problems with the ignition switches that um, when there was a heavy keychain hanging on it, it would cause the ignition switch to shut the car off. People would lose power steering, power brakes, they would panic. And, and wow. fortunately, some people died. When they did the investigation, and, and it, it took a long time for them to find out what was going on, what actually happened was there was a flaw in the ignition switch, obviously. But what was notable is that the, the engineers found the flaw somewhere in the manufacturing process and they actually fixed it but they didn't do a, a classic thing that happens a lot in software they didn't change the version number right and so what you had was you had piles of ignition switches that were defective and piles that were fixed nobody could tell the difference and so when they were doing the investigation clearly that delayed the the, the finding of the problem because they were probably testing switches that were the new version and couldn't figure out you know it's the classic it works for me but yes. not, why is it not working for you problem wow. um so this is what happens when a mistake we make in the software world happens in the physical world right and people can can die in that in that case you know an, another example uh, also here in the states i think it was three years in a row we had uh e coli outbreaks on romaine lettuce the, the last one that happened, I think it was 2019, um, when the E. coli outbreak was happening and they were doing the investigation, it happened to cross the, the growing season boundary. So by the time people were worried about it, the lettuce being shipped at this point was now coming, I think, from California, where the previous season was in Arizona. Right. And and it was impossible, one, to know where the affected lettuce actually came from. And two, even if you could know all the rest of the lettuce that was on the shelves, you didn't know where it came from. So what did we do? We literally across the whole country threw out all the bags of lettuce everywhere. Now, just from an environmental perspective, that's a tragedy. Right. But but that costs people a lot of money. And and pe- growers and producers who had literally nothing to do with it because they weren't even in the same state as where the problem ultimately ended up being. Why did that happen? Well, again, there was no uh, bill of materials on the bags. It didn't say where the lettuce came from. Mm. So, again, made it harder to figure out where the problem was, made it harder to actually target a resolution to it. After three years of that happening every year, it seemed like for a while, now all the packages are, in fact, labeled at least with the region of origin, if not from the farm of origin, which you can imagine if and when it happens again, they'll be able to figure out, oh, all these packages came from the same farm. And if it didn't come from this farm, you're safe, right? Um, So that industry responded and created better supply chain practices 
because they had to, yeah. you know, and, and the other case I like to talk about as a, maybe a happier story, uh, way back when Boeing launched the 787, this was decade and a half ago, something like that. Um, there were a couple instances of batteries catching on fire while they were at the gates. Not a lot of people remember that yeah. but because they had good, uh, practices, they quickly were able to ascertain that it was a specific lot of batteries from a specific manufacturer and they were able to fix it quickly. And we all kind of forgot that it happened. It was basically a non-event, yeah. right? And so when we look at what happens in the physical world, when you make simple software mistakes, really bad things happen. If you follow good supply chain practices, it's not so bad. It's going, things will happen. It's going to, to be bad, but you can, you can deal with it. Now, yeah. if we think about what what happens as consumers, you know, we've been doing a study at Sonatype for last 10 years where we survey people about their practices and specifically ask them about how they manage their, their part flow. And, you know, is anybody paying attention when you choose new versions? Do you have any automated tooling to help you know when you need to update all these kinds of things? When we first started out, those numbers were in the low teens on average in terms of companies that did it. You know, last year, 50% were at a place where there was actually some governance and paying attention around um, what components and 37% of them finally had the ability to uh, actually track those parts had effective software bill of materials. That sounds awesome. When you think about it from a, we started in the teens perspective. Yes. Now picture cars, planes, and your food. Would you buy a car if you knew that only half of the parts in that car actually had any governance around why they were even in that car? Would you get on a plane if you knew that only 37% of the, the parts um, could be recalled if there was a problem? would you eat that food no. no of course we wouldn't right yeah. we wouldn't buy those cars or use those services so why do we tolerate it from the software that we buy why it worse why do we tolerate it from the software we write ourselves in our yeah. own organizations yeah. that's the shocking thing that you know i want people to really think about this when you when you put it in the right framing it becomes appalling it is. how bad it is and, yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you it's it's further shocking to me that i i talk to obviously many many companies I've seen companies who, uh, who, who produce these things like airplane engines or have, um, you know, uh, logistics companies where that's what they do. They do this with their physical goods. They are best in the industry. And then the developers will tell me horrifying practices. And it's like, I shouldn't have to preach to you about software supply chains. You guys should already know exactly what happens. You are doing it with your physical goods. Why do you allow it? Yes. You know, you can forgive a company who never had to deal with, uh, you know, assembly lines, not thinking that way. But companies that do it all day long as their main point of business and then put software on those same things that yeah. didn't follow the same process is is even more horrifying. Yes, I totally agree. I, I mean, they, this is, I, you know, I kind of uh, preparing for this podcast, I was prepared for the gravity of it. But actually, those stories that you've given have really brought it home. It's, it is a big, serious problem. And I think it's, it's interesting, going back to my days as a software engineer, I think the problem is, is that it's nothing, there's nothing visual, there's nothing tangible there to look at. Um, the software is, a, is an abstraction, it's a set of rules, and it's, uh, it's hard to kind of visualize it. So I'm, I'm trying to think how 
I don't know how you could visualize it so that people could actually start to notice this stuff. Um, yeah, we, we talked about that before the recording, right? And I've kind of I've kind of used that analogy um, a bit, right? If you if you're picking a car, you know, and you you sit in the driver's seat and you close the door, you get a feeling for how well it's built simply by how it sounds and how it feels, yes. right? Is that is it made out of thin, cheap materials or does it sound like it's well built? But when you turn the car on, you have no visibility into what's in the software. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, in, in a modern car, because they're competing on software features just as much as they are the reliability and fuel mileage these days. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the infotainment systems are linked to all of the other parts of the car. Yeah. And a lot of them are running open source. Yeah. Um, in fact, probably all of them, if it's anything modern. And so all of these same problems exist inside the cars. And, you know, to the extent that they are connected you know, they're, they're connected for software updates. They're connected to the cell network for, for other types of things. Um, those mean they're potentially exploitable. There have been, um, you know, white hat hackers have shown that they can take over cars via either Wi-Fi or Bluetooth and apply brakes or steering controls. Uh, you know, so, so yeah. this stuff is, is, is very real. It's, it's not, um, it's not FUD. It's no. happening all the day. If you go look around, you see hospitals that are shut down via ransomware because of this. People die, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they have to be be moved from from one hospital to another. Um, you know, there there was a big one that happened in 2015. Uh, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital was ransomware for for a year. Uh, sorry, not a year, a week. Um, and and um, it came in through a a, a, a pretty popular uh, component that had a had a. It wasn't even a vulnerability. It was a it was a a class that um, had a legitimate purpose, but when uh, when used in the right way, it could could lead to a uh, an exploit, a remote ex code execution exploit, kind of one of the worst. The reason why it was targeted was that common mode failure. Commons collections was the component. It's basically in every Java application or the Java uh, application server. So from the targeters, they knew. If I, you know, if I could figure out how to exploit this, I would. And so we used to talk about, um, you know, while there's not a name in the newspaper of somebody that died from that, mathematically, it's provable that it had to have killed people. Um, how do I know? Well, there are studies that have been done uh, on the Boston Marathon, the New York City Marathon. On those days, the 90-day mortality rates of people that have heart attacks is significantly, statistically significantly worse than on any other day of the year. Why is that? The ambulances have to route around the, the marathon path. Oh, wow. So you get less optimal ambulance routing. And in something like a heart attack, minutes literally matter or a stroke, right? And so now imagine what happens when a hospital outside of LA is shut down for a week. <laughs> like it doesn't take a lot of mathematics to prove that 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 killed people. Um, unfortunately, I think it was in the last nine months, there was a hospital in the UK, actually it was. Uh, I forget the name um, that was uh, also shut down by attackers. And they there was a name in the news of somebody who had to be rerouted and died on the way. Right. So while it used to be a mathematically provable but theoretical problem, it's now been shown to it's be a real thing, a real problem. Yeah. I've got kind of two following questions from this. I mean, first of all, uh, one of them is around, you mentioned here about kind of version numbering. I, you know, the, the examples you gave, I, I'm shocked because I version number everything, you know. Um, I'm, it's just the practice. I, maybe it's from my software days, but, you know, if I change anything, it's different. And especially in coding, uh, the slightest nuance can can have a huge impact on the good behavior of software. Um, so 
um, you know, the, being able to say a thing is a particular version and a certain check. Is there kind of automation in place now that kind of forces that versioning up? It's not down to the developers to be able to version something up. It's kind of done, you know, it's part of the process. Yeah, in a in a fairly modern infrastructure with a continuous integration, continuous deployment, I think that's a problem we as an industry solved a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so that 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 ignition switch mistake is one that seems less likely to happen um, because we've all experienced the it works for me, not for you problem. Yeah. Um, and on all these modern tools like Maven kind of enforce that practice. Um, so that that's less the problem. The problem is more um, that companies don't know what components are in the software because the developers pick them. And worse, you know, a, a given component can pull in more transitively. You know, right. in Java, you have probably a one to 10. So if you pull in one new little uh, jar, it might pull 10 more with it. If you pull in a framework, you probably got hundreds, but but you might only have one or two frameworks in your application. Um, on JavaScript, it's actually more like a thousand to one, actually. So one one thing might might explode out to uh, on average a thousand uh, individual dependencies. So even if your developer says I need this thing, they may not realize all the things that drag <laughs> along with it. <laughs> so even if you were paying attention to your what we call the direct dependencies, yeah. the transitive dependencies explode that problem. It's just not possible to manage from from a manual perspective, and that's why we have tooling that help our 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 customers deal with that. That we can definitively tell them these are the things that are in your application even if you didn't know they were there they're still there um yeah. and, and help them uh, more intentionally manage that yeah brilliant uh, yeah i honestly um my head is hurting at the at the gravity of <laughs> i mean I, it's a good job there's kind of people like yourself there but it does seem like a very i, I think it's the fact that we don't see it we don't visualize uh the and, and as you can imagine, these kind of chains of things that are kind of following behind, they're all strung together. As soon as you drag one in, you, you know, the, the whole thing's uh, got a different signature and potential. Um, uh, so, okay, I, I'm going to pretend to be a tech leader at the moment. You know, I've always wanted to be a tech leader. Well, I am a tech leader. I'm a, I'm a chief talking officer, CTO. But um, uh, how would you, what advice would you give to kind of other tech leaders out there? What's the kind of first steps or the three main things that they need to do to solve this? Yeah, so I like to ask, I like to ask thought-provoking questions. Um, so, you know, I'll ask this: if if I told you about a new vulnerability right now that nobody in the world has heard of, um, I got the opportunity actually to do this yesterday because I was giving a talk yesterday while the the the, the malicious thing I was talking about uh, was actually unfolding. Right. If if I told you about that right now, how long would it take you to find out? in your whole organization, are we even using this component, any version of this component? Could you answer that question? Could you tell me, are you using this exact version? Could you tell me which applications? If the answer is no to any of those, you've got a long uh, road ahead of you. You need to get started because you need to be able to answer those. That's the recall capability that we, we would not tolerate from our car manufacturers, yeah. right? And so if you're able to do that, even at a high level, you need to be able to get to a point where, okay, if you knew about it and you could track it to the application, how quickly could the application teams turn around a fix? This speaks more to the, you know, uh, what was it, four years ago, Equifax, they only had two days 
before they were being exploited on this vulnerability. They had two days to turn around a fix. They had the two from when it was first publicly announced. So they first had to find out about it, find out where it was affected, fix them and get them into production. So that speaks more to towards your ability to be agile in your release process and your update. But again, if you don't even know if you're affected, you know, so many of these things are uh, we call security by press release. You know, some big disclosure goes out and then uh, some executive sees it in the morning news and then emails their company like, are we using this? You shouldn't have to ask that question. No. Um, and, and so that's the thought provoking thing. Run through that tabletop exercise, pick a component, ask your teams, are we using this or not? and then try to follow that thread because that will highlight for you if you're doing an adequate job or or no job at all in this area yeah. um and, and and then ask yourself the question if my developers inadvertently downloaded the wrong version because they went and searched so yesterday's example uh there's a there's a, a popular javascript component called browserify um it's downloaded more than two million times every week and so it's super popular. And um, somebody published to the to the public repository something called web-browserify. Um, and so it's easy to see why somebody might get confused uh, in, in the moment. Uh, we see a lot of attacks where they s replace underscores with dashes. And how would somebody know the difference? It's a very simple mistake. How would you know if your developer downloaded that thing inadvertently and has a backdoor installed on their system? Mm. Um, right, because that speaks to how you deal with the next malicious attack. Like I said, we've we last year we saw a 430 explo percent explosion from a couple hundred to uh, a thousand plus in one year. Um, this year we're seeing hundreds of them every month. So this is happening in real time basis. How are you defending against that? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, in terms of the supply chain practices, the building the bill of materials, you know, the, the DevOps industry talks a lot about Edwards Deming and his principles. Right. And for those that don't know, Deming was um, a supply chain um, guru, I guess you will, who helped the Japan auto industry rebuild after the war by focusing on, you know, using the best suppliers, using the best parts from those suppliers, track all of them. Right. It's the same stuff we've been talking about. That's good. You should be doing that. Um, but also remember that those practices were focused on producing better cars in our world, better software that we're shipping. Those mm. practices are important and you absolutely must do them for all the reasons we just talked about. You wouldn't be able to respond. But you need to remember those practices did not protect the factory from an intentional, let's say, you know, malicious attack. Right. They were focused on the car, not the factory mm. in the software world. The attacks are happening on your factory right now. So while you need to be good at checking out what's going into your software you produce, you need to be paying attention to what's happening in the development infrastructure. And, and in a COVID world where everybody has moved to working at home, uh, you might have had mitigating controls around the computers in the office. You know, they might have been behind a firewall. They might have been, um, you know, more observable if something bad was happening in that infrastructure just because of our traditional perimeter defense that happens well now your developers are at home outside of that perimeter and exposed mm -hmm. to even more stuff so the visibility from your traditional ops security type things is even further reduced making that risk even more likely to to result in a in a bad uh, outcome yeah 
Sorry to have so much bad news, but yeah, you know, no, it, start, it starts by raising awareness so absolutely. people can think about this and, and start to address it. Because if you're not even paying attention to it, you're just ripe for Yes, for getting it's good. and everything comes from awareness. And it's good to have these conversations because I've learned quite a lot. Um, I think my awareness has sharpened up around, around this kind of subject. Um, so coming back to yourself then, um, your kind of leadership side, you've obviously got, you know, teams developing this stuff. And I, I guess you've got lots of interactions with the, well, you have got interactions with the open source community. I mean, what kind of leadership do you need in this kind of open source space? I mean, is it different to standard uh, leadership in other companies, big corporates? Well, um, <laughs> certainly when you're out there in a, in a public world, um, you know, talking about stuff like this, trying, trying to, um, help people along. Certainly it helps to have a bit of hubris and be a little bit humble. Um, I never try to say things that would cause people to dare to prove me wrong, especially when you're talking about security. Nobody wants to be the guy that says the Titanic is unsinkable, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. right? Because there's a whole bunch of bug bounty or, or just uh, attackers out there who are willing yeah. to, to make a name to prove you wrong. So I think that that's something that, that I think about a lot and I, I work with our teams to, you know, we're trying to make the world a better place. Nothing is perfect. Um, be humble about it. Um, th that is really important when you're dealing with the open source community, for sure. No yeah. question. Yeah, I, I can imagine in the open source community, I've worked in companies, um, you know, in software departments and stuff, but in the open source community, they kind of think the. I imagine this is an assumption now, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of people working on open source are the kind of cutting edge engineers, very creative, um, you know, they're doing it for, for a passion, you know. They are, but like I talked about before, you know, because it's become so accessible, um, it, it's no longer people working at big companies, working with foundations with a lot of experience. It's often high school, college kids doing things on their weekend. And that that's great. But as a consumer, you need to at least be aware of that. Yeah. And it can help influence your choices, yeah. uh, you know prefer projects that are at one of the open source foundations. They might move a little bit slower, but they have some governance process and best practices um, sharpened over many, many decades to, to usually produce better outcomes. Yes, that's right. And um, speaking to another tech leader around this subject, we were talking about, you know, democratization of software. I mean, that's what open source is. It's people kind of you know, uh, it's democratization, innovation in a way, you know, in the in the software arena, and, uh, and and there's a level of kind of meritocracy as well. You know, kind of the best engineers are kind of working on this and you know refining it as you go along. Do you feel, uh, in light of these kind of security issues, that that democratization has maybe gone too far and needs to be kind of reined in a little bit, uh, um, or, or is the solution that you're kind of putting out there where you? You're giving people a, a standard to kind of work at. You know, this is the bare minimum that you've got to show that you're kind of following good practices. Yeah, I, I don't think it's gone too far. I think, I think the ability to allow people to, to empower developers to express themselves, um, to produce uh, innovative software, ultimately will lead society where, where it needs to be, right? To, to produce self-driving cars and, and all the things that we imagine of the future. The, that I feel like is a requirement. The, the problem is we've moved that uh, part of the industry ahead so far that the practices haven't caught up to us. And, you know, like the supply chain physical stuff I talked about, we're not the first industry to go through this transformation. We're yeah. just 
the most recent. And we don't have to be super creative. We just have to look at the lessons of the past of the past industries. And regulations are part of that as well, right? You know, before there were food regulations, people got sick all the time because there weren't basic standards. And so, you know, there there is a, a bit of an element of, uh, you know, the free market will fix it. If, if there's a supplier who is doing bad things, mm. will ultimately be put out of business. That's mostly true. But like we talked about in the software, it's really hard for the average consumer to assess the actual thing that they're buying in that case or getting for free or is coming for free on one of the devices that they buy. And, and that's where the transparency around the software bill of materials, I think will get us to a place where it's like the food labels. Right. We've all just come to accept it. But that wasn't always the case. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so, again, I think the parallels to the previous industries really show us the way we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We know we know what needs to be done and we expect that it's done in so many of our goods. Um, and, and so that's that's what I think needs to happen, not the over regulation of the software. That's not going to get us where we want it to be. Yeah, great point. That's a really good point. I, I, I don't like uh over-regulation or anything, it just it just snubs out. It, it, it solves one or two problems, but creates a whole load of other ones. And one of them mm-hmm. is, uh, is uh, deleting innovation, you know, uh, and collaboration maybe. Um, coming to your teams then, what's the thing that you do to kind of help your teams uh, become more, uh, I don't know, high-performing, I guess, delivering more business value? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it's a lot. Um, you know, I, I try to get the teams to focus a lot on the outcome. You know, I, 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 um, I, even though our company now is what 13 years old, I still feel that uh, the clock ticking constantly. I don't feel like we're ever in a situation where you can rest. You have to okay. constantly go. As mm-hmm. as we've been successful at raising awareness around this problem for consumers, mm-hmm. um, same is true for competitors and other people that want to come in um, and and try to do the same thing. And and so you know there there's a tendency within engineering to try and you know be innovative. Sometimes that innovation is misapplied towards innovative processes you know so i like to remind people like look we need we need procedures and processes to do the right things but we don't need to invent the process for every single thing mm-hmm. if it's if it's simple let's just do it and get it done and move on with life right um focus on 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 the outcome a bit you know but that comes i don't want to over rotate on that because then you can get to a completely chaotic perspective so um it it takes a bit of a balance but um as as companies scale and i've lived it from two of us all the way to i think we're we're well over 400 people now it's a big big um spectrum you know as you scale it becomes um harder to to manage things without the right checks and balances in place the trick is finding the right ones to apply in the right place that don't uh, have more unintended consequences. Yeah. And what's the culture like in your organization? Uh, and, and as part of your leadership, what's the culture that you kind of, um, the interesting thing is we've always, uh, at least within the engineering product and engineering part of the house have always been work from home, fully distributed. That comes from our open source roots. You know, in the beginning we hired other people working on open source projects. And of course they were all over the world. 
And we were used to collaborating via IRC and mailing lists and wikis and things like that. Um, and so we just adopted that culture and it served us well over the, the, the many years. Um, when we started out, uh, you know, investors were scratching their heads, you know, saying things like, we don't understand how this works. We're used to giving you guys a bunch of money. You go spend it on an exorbitant lease and try to fill it with people. And yeah. you're telling us you don't want to do that, that you're just going to hire these people. We don't understand. Um, that was in 07, 08, right? Yeah. Then bigger companies like Spotify and GitHub and some of the others showed that fully remote really can, can work. And then of course, you know, it was, I, I guess, uh, the grand accidental planning for a pandemic world because the pandemic came and everybody shifted to working from home and it largely didn't impact our product and engineering. Yeah. Um, our sales and marketing and, and finance and stuff like that, they were in offices, but I think we had a leg up because more than half the company already had the tools and best practices in place. So it was easy to, to basically just flip over and show them how to do it. Brilliant. working remotely yeah so um so so um you know we have a we have a pretty good work from home culture with a, a work life balance um that we've honed over the years you know we we understand that it's important especially when you're working at home and you're looking at a machine all day yeah. um that that you need to have uh the certain things to keep people from you know as as humans from going crazy and so we do all of our calls over video we have done that for Oh, geez, four or five years at this point using various tools because we found um, that that was a much better way. It's it's harder to be a jerk to somebody when you're kind of looking them in the <laughs> eye than when they're just a voice on the phone. Um, so so that's a part of the, the culture that's adapted, um, you know, uh, making sure that, you know, in, in our our Slack uh, tools, we have uh, rooms for people to talk about their hobbies. You know, because when you work from home, you don't have the water cooler talk. You don't have the ability to say, hey, let's go get lunch and let's go hang out and just learn about each other as people. Um, so we try to create that kind of environment um, as well to give people that ability to talk about it. And I don't even know how many how many different uh, we call them special interest SIG rooms that that we have. But, you know, there's do it yourselfers, there's home finance, there's real estate, there's. Oh, wow. Uh, the bicycle group that, you know, virtually bikes around the world every month when they add up all their statistics, you know, all these kinds of things um, help ensure that all of the employees connect to each other as people. And yeah. that the, the culture of an organization matters so much more than, than all the other things, because if you have a culture of, of, uh, competition and siloization, that's how you get to these places where these bad outcomes we've been talking about mm. ultimately uh, can live on. That's right. People aren't seeing the kind of end-to-end -end process there. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in the fact that you, you know, you've kind of had this culture of working from home remotely. Uh, some people have really struggled with it, and we're kind of joking offline around that. You know, I'm, I'm suffering from uh, a level of uh, log cabin fever, which I'm solving with a log cabin in the garden. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, how do you kind of get the collaboration, the quality of collaboration, uh, working so much because open source as you say has figured this one out a long time ago um i love getting around a whiteboard and kicking a pen around and uh you know and sharing a pen with somebody and then uh, rubbing other people's bits of drawing out and say no 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 it's this way you know kind of thing how do you solve that the whiteboard one is still still a challenge um different teams have different things you know i i have a apple pencil for my ipad if i want to scribble all over stuff i find that that is a, a really effective way to do it um but it, it but not, not everybody has that. So it depends on the team. There are some decent tools um, that allow you to draw pictures 
reasonably well. You know, uh, mm. we use a lot of the Google online stuff. So Google Sheets and Google Docs where you can live edit stuff together. Same thing for presentations, you know, on the product management side, you know, when everybody's uh, swarming on a presentation, putting all their slides together, those kind of real time collaboration tools, the creative tools help a lot. People use Google Sketch to make those pictures in lieu of a whiteboard. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and in many ways, what's really interesting and, and the open source community, I think, figured this out a long time ago, when you set it up right, the, the, the outcome of that is what would be typically ad hoc um temporary artifacts that are created like a whiteboard you figure it out everybody walks away with the picture in their head and then a year later how do you go back and look at that if you've done it online using these tools that that artifact is usually kicking around in google drive you can go find it yes. right and update yeah. it you can find the documentation in the wiki around the thing and and in the open source you know in, in at least in apache the mantra is if it doesn't happen on the mailing list it didn't happen Right. So groups can go off and have live conversations. They can have Slack, but any decision and meaningful discussion has to happen on the mailing list because those things are archived. Right. And so the sort of accidental outcome of this culture that we've built of of being remote and the tooling that comes with it has created that long history of all of those artifacts. So we can pull up the pictures of the things that we were thinking about 10 years ago. Um, they're right there for everybody to see yeah. uh, because we had to, because we had to share it with the people who weren't in the same office. They weren't in the same room with us. Yeah. Excellent. And coming back to your kind of people, what's the kind of mix of do you, with the open source community, you've got a lot of externals, uh, you know, people, specializations. Do you kind of, uh, is it all internal people that you have, or do you kind of have uh, in-source or outs outsource some of your work? Um, that's a great question. We tend to focus on, as much as we can durable teams so we do um we do outsource in the extent that we we pull in contract uh uh employees yeah. um when it makes sense and so when when we look at that it's if the project is uh more temporary it's not core where we're going to need the expertise to be here five years from now um or or as a staff augmentation is the more often case to to help burst capacity so you don't over hire and then have to do a, some kind of reduction mm -hmm. um, but the way we found that to be most productive um is to embed those people into the dur durable teams so it's it's very rare, almost never the case that we have a team that is composed entirely of external, uh, you know, uh, contract labor. It's yeah. it's almost always the case that the product manager and the technical lead and some of the people are uh, full time employees and then augmented with with um, consulting uh, capabilities and and that's really handy when you're trying to burst capacity when you have temporary need it's also handy um, when it's a specialized skill that you might not need for a long period of time um, being able to leverage the contract uh, labor force is really helpful in that regard but you know when, when you try to farm out uh, the entire project to an external thing the overhead and the management required to make that really successful yeah. ends up costing you in the end. It, it sounds easy to just hire a team or just throw requirements over the wall. You almost never get what you want. And even if you did, how do you maintain it over the longer period of time? How yeah. do you evolve it? You have none of the knowledge that comes with that software. So that's the model that we've uh, worked with for 
you know, we've been doing that pretty reliably for the last 10 years and it's been very effective. And, 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 you know, we have, I honestly couldn't tell you off the top of my head, how many of, of our, uh, team members are, are contractors. Um, and I would struggle to tell you which ones they are because they're part of the team. They're in the Slack, they're, they're engaged in this. And, and that's really important too, to make them feel a sense of purpose, yes. not just to, I'm just here to write this code and throw it over the wall and go on to the next thing, because then they lack the the pride of ownership and all that. So, you know, when the people come on, they're onboarded just like the full-time employees. They're treated just like the full-time employees. And I think that's really critical to, to being able to successfully leverage them. That's great. I, I really like that because it's, uh, it's kind of showing a, a real kind of human side to the teams, are people, you know, at the end of the day, they're not uh, uh, cogs that you're kind of hiring in. Um, right. And uh, any kind of engineering challenges that you're facing at the moment, other than the ones you described, you're going to the attackers and uh, people up to shenanigans trying to get into this kind of open source uh i think they're just the typical uh the typical challenges you know there's always a scaling challenge as you try to uh scale sometimes you need to um uh you need to um get better at finding specialization you know jack of all trades are awesome when you're five people um not so much when you're trying to do um you yes. know awesome looking designs and artists engineers are not great ui designers normally <laughs> um <laughs> you know it's and so uh, the ones who are both are are rock stars right that that cross multiple dimensions um are are, are in high demand but you know when you start to introduce specialization and you need to then break it down it it's challenging sometimes to make sure that you've got teams that are working well together from different disciplines um, and you don't inadvertently create uh, silos so yeah. those are those are scaling challenges i think they're just inevitable kind of problems that everybody deals with but you know being upfront and honest about we don't want silos we actually uh, hate silos and what are we going to do about it how do we allow people that are um you know just uh different types of thinkers right the engineers think differently than the marketers and differently yeah. than the than the uh designers um the, and, and recognize that the way people naturally want to work are different but yet we need to come together to achieve a common outcome is yeah. a challenge if i was uh, a tech genie right i'm gonna i'm gonna offer you a wish for your tech leadership if you could have a wish, what would that be for your teams, your business, your industry? I would wish that um, that that uh, software as a community, as a as a what's the word I'm looking for, um, the software as a profession um, would uh, really um, take seriously our responsibility to the rest of society in a way that I think because it's evolved so fast, we just haven't come to grips with. And um, I, I would wish minimally that um, that everybody would understand it and, and see some of the things that I see um, because then we will be able to come up with solutions that I can't sit here and just wish with a magic wand, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many different ways to solve this problem that, um, it would be foolish of me to use my wishes on just <laughs> dictating three of them, let's say. Yeah. But 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 if I could use my one wish to get everybody to open their eyes and see it, 
then I think the problem will get solved. Yeah. It'll people, get solved in multiple innovative ways. That's right. It's again that awareness, you know, people become aware yeah. and then they, they act upon it. And you can't, um, un you can't unsee some of the things that I've shown you. Yeah, that's right. Let me show you. <laughs> and I love that. And um, here we go. This is actually, this is, this is one of my fun ones. This is uh, for my own selfish reasons. Really. What books would you recommend other tech leaders and leaders out there, the gateway books that you think uh, defined your journey? Um, yeah, I would say any of the books by Patrick Lencioni, but specifically the five dysfunctions of a team, yeah, so um, is, is my favorite. I've read it a few times and, you know, my own journey, uh, you know, early in my career, um, you know, I, I shared an office with a, with a good friend and, and technical lead. We were co-technical leads, like the worst situation where you get two people in charge, <laughs> it is ripe for a lot of conflict and, um, you know, it was interesting because we we um, we commuted to work back and forth um, together and we shared an office and we would have knockout drag out fights. But at the end of the day, we had to get in the car and go home together. We couldn't hate each other. We couldn't we couldn't <laughs> be mad for long. Um, you know, and people used to congregate out our outside our office when we'd be having a, a massively, you know, hostile fight about the key elements. It wasn't about us as people. It was about our ideas. Right. And then, you know we'd be done with that. And then it's like, okay, let's go get lunch. And people are like, how do you do that? How do you have fights like that? Where it sounds like you're throwing chairs at each other and now you're going to go get pizza. And it's like, you know, because, because we've built up that trust, we understand yes. and we're focused on the common outcome. And, you know, we were a very high performing team in that organization. It was a small team. Um, and we were very transparent, very candid, obviously, if we were, you know, sometimes screaming at each other. Um, but but it was it was um, based on that trust and we could move on. And then it was only after I left that organization and then started, I somehow came across the five dysfunctions of a team and I read the book. And, it, and then I realized, wait, that is exactly what happened. We didn't design intentionally for it. I accidentally lived it. And so then what what was nice was the book allowed me to then put a vocabulary on it to then be able to diagnose and assess and intentionally manage in that direction in the future. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think that's a transformative book. Um, he's written a number of additional books, you know, from different uh, different perspectives. Um, and I, I think I've read them all. Um, but I would I would pick minimally that one because it will it will help you not only in your tech career, but in your personal relationships and, as totally. well to be able to understand what's going on. That's right. Well, here I said, I've got a, I'm working with a client at the moment and trust is the, is the one that we're working on at the moment. Because everything after that, you know, you can't build on no trust. It's just... That's right. You, if you don't have the trust, you can't be candid. If you can't be candid, then you become, you know, uh, hostile and political and all these kinds of things that yeah. just, you know, it, it becomes a, a, a death spiral. I, I love that idea of uh, um, getting people to start trusting each other by having those heated, you know, forcing those heated comments and discussions during the day and then getting them to drive, I don't know, around the block a few times. <laughs> right. you know? And they have to kind of come out of the car feeling good right. about it. If I get too nasty, I'm going to be walking home and a 45 minute drive is a long walk. Right. So yeah, it, it kind right. of has a natural gating factor to what you might, <laughs> yeah. might actually say. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's brilliant. I love that. And, um, and finally, as we come to this closing arc of the podcast, what's your key takeaway for other tech leader, men and women out there? What would you gift them with? I, I would gift them with hopefully a new perspective about, you know, our role in society as software professionals, our, our uh, ability or, or 
our need to look at other industries to uh, learn from them um, and, and improve our practices for the sake of, of everybody. Because uh, the software we create these days, even if you're an open source programmer working on something on, on the weekend, your software might find its way into a medical device, a car, a plane, um, and, and it could kill people. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we need, we need people to pay attention to that. And so I would, I would gift people with that, that vision of, uh, being able to see that, understand it. And I would hope that people would behave accordingly with that, that newfound, uh, visibility. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been great having you on board, sir. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Well, if anything, that was a long one, but I really enjoyed our conversation with Brian. And we tried really hard to take some things out, but to be honest, I found it all valuable. So I hope you find it valuable too as well. So being an embedded software engineer in the past, I have an idea of what the open source community is like and what it's about. But this podcast was a real eye-opener for me. I've come to appreciate the open source community much, much more. In fact, I am bowing to you all out there right now. Did you feel that? Did you feel that respect? And secondly, I can see how the supply chain of software can become not just a backdoor to security breaches, but a kind of mission impossible operation that gets in and out without you even realizing it. And in some cases that you actually played a part as a developer in making it happen. So I hope you got some good valuable takeaways from the podcast. Well, these are mine. Firstly, there are good, simple, common sense practices to ensure that your supply chain of software is safe, robust, and doesn't have stuff lurking around in it that's gonna pull a fast one on you. My second key takeaway is visualizing security concepts with visual analogies, because the software and IT industry, it's an abstract world. It's really hard to kind of visualize how some of these kind of security concepts and, and practices mean. And I found the visualizations that Brian shared absolutely brilliant and highlighted the folly of some of the poor practices that we see out there. So thank you for that, Brian. And thirdly and finally, the money involved in this industry is eye-watering. The industry of breaching people's IT infrastructures and operations and data is big money. In fact, from what Brian told me, even bigger than the drug industry now. And the villains aren't your atypical, stereotypical villains anymore. They are super geek criminals playing smart games in the comfort of their office, study, or even their couch while watching Netflix. Well, there you have it a new stereotype of villains out there. Of course, I say all this in jest. So thanks again, Brian. I loved our conversation. I came away more enlightened because of the stories and visualizations that you shared with me. I love your passion around this super important topic. I see you and Sonatype as the superhero guardians of a better open source software world. Maybe you can start wearing some superhero outfits, you know, with a Java penguin on the front or something. Anyway, back to the serious point. Thank you again for your time and keep fighting the good fight to keep us all safe in the digital world. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf 
with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.